You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 43, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Vincent Horn, the co-founder of Buddhist Geeks and Meditate.io. Vincent began teaching meditation in 2010 and has been called a power player of the mindfulness movement by Wired Magazine and was honored to be featured in Wired UK's Smart List, 50 People Who Will Change the World. You can find out more about Vincent Horn at BuddhistGeeks.org. We're extremely pleased to welcome Vincent Horn to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In the interview that you're about to hear with Vincent Horn, you'll hear Vincent talk about the value of social noting practice, and you'll actually get to hear the two of us engage in such a practice with each other. For today's tip, I'd like to suggest that you try out engaging in a personal or individual noting practice with your smartphone. So what that involves is interacting with your smartphone in any way that you like, really. It could be as simple as just picking up your phone, waking it up, and looking at the home screen. Or it could be going onto social media, onto a website, reading or writing a text message, and then paying attention to whatever is in the forefront of your attention. It might be what you're seeing. It might be the audio that you're hearing. It might be feelings in your body, tension or your breath. And then you just put that to words. You might make it as simple as a single word, like if what's in the forefront of your attention is what you're seeing, you would just say seeing. And then in the next moment, you pay attention to what's at the forefront of your attention. And if it's what you're hearing, you would say hearing. You can go into more detail if you want, but I'd suggest that you keep it simple. And if you're wondering, why do this? It is a way of practicing paying attention to your experience and to identifying what your experience is. And many of us find that attaching a word to that experience helps clarify exactly what our current experience in the moment is. And one reason I found this kind of practice helpful in connection with use of my smartphone is that I, like so many of us, often find myself engaging with and interacting with my smartphone automatically, reflexively, and without really paying attention to what I'm actually doing. So by pausing and forcing yourself to not only pay attention to what your experience is, but attach a word to it, you can cultivate that ability to be aware of what you're doing and thereby create the opportunity to make more conscious decisions also about how and when and why you use technology. Give it a shot. I hope you find it helpful, and I hope you enjoy the upcoming interview with Vincent Horn. Hi, Vincent, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Robert. You're welcome. I'm really glad to have you on here today. Uh, one of the reasons is that you have been in the, let's call it the 
online digital mindfulness world for a really long time. I mean, it's it's not an old field, but mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in, in, in internet time, you've been doing this for a long time, uh, founding Buddhist geeks and, and running many different projects through that, through different iterations. Uh, I wonder if you can just start by telling people what got you into this, you know, what motivated you to to found Buddhist Geeks and tell people a little bit about that organization for those people who don't already know about it. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, Buddhist Geeks is um, primarily known as a podcast. Uh, we launched in 2007, January 1st, um, right at the beginning of the sort of podcasting era. As you say, it's not a it's not a very old uh, <laughs> space, but it's uh, amazing to me that's been well over a decade now. And um, you know, we launched my co-founder Ryan Olke and I launched with an intention in mind to explore the way that Buddhism, uh, the tradition, was intersecting with um, modernity. And um, over the years, that conversation has continued to evolve and change and developed in directions mostly that have to do with my own interests um, as the as the host. And um, how I got into it is that I was um, prior to this uh, a student, a computer engineering major, and uh, started to uh, come back around to meditation. I'd first been introduced to it as a teen and had gotten actually fairly deep into it without knowing that. And then looped back around to it in my late teens and became extremely serious about um, meditation and contemplative practice. And so I dropped out of my engineering program in order to become a full-time meditator slash uh, uh, waiter. And um, (laughs) really, Buddhist Geeks was the attempt to try to integrate or bring those two halves back together to figure out and make sense of these two very different realities, my love for technology and this sort of a burgeoning internet. I'm, I'm an elder millennial, so I, I grew up with the internet, um, as as all of us did. And um, and then on the other hand, this contemplative practice and the depths of mind training and exploration of consciousness, and and the way that those two, at least in the beginning, um, seemed diametrically opposed, um, if not completely different realities. Of course, as I you know did Buddhist geeks and had all these conversations, I realized, of course, they weren't. Uh, and increasingly, I think the public conversation around it has, is, is leaning in that direction. Um, so, yeah, it's exciting to be at the forefront of a really emerging dialogue. Yeah, I wonder if you can uh, talk a little bit about what at the time felt like technology or your background in computer science uh, and mindfulness were, were diametrically opposed, uh, because that that feeling within individuals and in the culture at large has changed and shifted over time. What what was it at the time for you personally that felt like that was a, a strong tension that you wanted to address and to help other people address? Yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of it went back to and goes back to generational differences. Um, and, you know, the teachers that I was studying with in the in the Buddhist world um, who are teaching, you know, insight meditation, mindfulness, um, they were all boomers and their general orientation to technology at that time was um, to either ignore it or simply to kind of dismiss it in kind of a way that was clear to me that they didn't understand it in the way that I did and the way that my peers did. So, um, you know, the 
kind of dharma and kind of training that I was receiving um, really didn't make sense to me in in those terms. And so, you know, for me, I, I sort of, the way I look at it now is, you know, the teachers that I worked with, they had this great translation project of going to Asia, um, learning there, and then bringing it back to the West. So they went from the East to the West, and they had to do a major translation project uh, with respect to that, both linguistically, culturally, um, um, in terms of bringing it out of more patriarchal societies into more democratic societies, all of that. And the way that I look at, you know, the work that Buddhist Geeks has been about and, and what we're doing now is it's really a translation from the analog to the digital, which is to me, it's equally, if not more profound of a shift in terms of paradigm. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of the tension that I felt was this analog versus digital mindset. And, you know, how do these deep, uh, profound things that, you know, experienced that I experienced on silent retreat practice and in the sort of Buddhist context translate into a high speed digital highly relational um you know huge amount of input world um mm. you know that was the tension yeah i wonder if you can talk a little bit about uh what the dimensions of that translation may be i mean i i think what i just heard you say was uh talking about some aspect of how many of our lived experiences involve interacting with digital technology, uh, which involves speed and communicating with each other online, all these ways in which technology uh, has become integrated into our lives. I've spoken to some other people on the podcast who've talked about translating mindfulness uh, into the online world in the concrete uh, way of delivering mindfulness education through the internet. And and maybe there's more dimensions than that, that that you're thinking of. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I see that as one big trend, you know, the secularizing of mindfulness and the kind of attempt to um, communicate and educate in a different way. Um, and that's certainly part of it. And it's kind of the move from more traditional um, practice cultures to more modern and the transition from more analog ways of teaching and working with things to more digital. And, and I see that definitely as one of the dimensions of, you know, the, the, this translation project, I think the other dimension, which it's probably less clear is the way that Buddhist mindfulness reflects back on modernity. Um, you know, so if we assume that these two uh, modernity and, and Buddhism have something to offer one another that they shine a light on each other. I think the light that Buddhism shines on modernity um, has been a little less clear than the way that modernity changes Buddhism. And part of the reason is modernity is such a huge and powerful force. And there's so many dimensions to, to, to modernity, you know, um, I don't want to speak too broadly, but I mean, there's capitalism, there's, um, you know, there's the, all the digital technologies and there's uh, our governance and de democracy. And, you know, there's all of these different powerful institutions and deeply embedded beliefs that we come up uh, with as secular people. And where I think the translation project still has a lot of work to do is to sort of see how do these ancient Buddhist approaches, what might they offer modernity that we're actually missing? Um, 
that's the part that I get kind of most curious about these days. And it's a big question. Sure. I wonder if if you can share, are there any examples in the work that you've done through Buddhist geeks yeah. of this kinds of translation of Buddhism in, in, into the modern world, either through some projects or ways that you teach or have yeah. interacted with people to help people understand both what you've done and maybe so they could benefit from it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one thing, one project that I, I see starting to actually catch hold and, and start to enter the, the mainstream dialogue now that, that we were really exploring on Buddhist Geeks from day one is the whole conversation about the difficult aspects of the contemplative journey or the um, what, what one of my teachers called the dark night stages of practice. Yes. And the way that, you know, when one gets into meditation in a, in a kind of serious way, meaning, you know, that it's, it becomes part of one's life. It's like a serious part of one's life. And um, it starts to influence not, you know, not just what we do in terms of our habits each day, like coming and sitting for, for a little while and then going to work and doing our thing. But it sort of becomes something that we're always considering or we're coming back to again and again throughout our day all the time. At that point, a lot of people ex start to experience very weird stuff. And sometimes they experience, you know, a sense, their sense of self identity changing or even dissolving. Um, difficult, very difficult and painful emotions can surface, confusion, disorientation. It can feel like one's practice where it was really good and easy before and providing all these amazing benefits suddenly completely breaks down and the mind is wandering as if like we're starting from day one. And for me, what I learned in, in going through the journey was that, um, that that is actually a stage of practice that's expected. Um, if you, if your attention gets honed enough and you become focused enough and, and paying attention consistently enough, that's supposed to happen. Your ego is supposed to dissolve. Your sense of identity is supposed to break down um, and that's what these practices were originally designed to do. And now most people aren't doing me enough meditation. They're, they're, they're not getting the dose high enough to experience those mm -hmm. things, but it's not uncommon for people, even with low doses, micro doses of mindfulness to start to experience these kinds of effects. And so that has been a deep conversation on the podcast. It's, it's central to how I teach meditation. Um, I, you know, I, I sort of want to help people move through that phase and get to the other side because there is another side and on the other side is actually really, really good <laughs> um, for a while <laughs> until it gets bad again. Um, but, um, you know, that this is sort of starting to enter the mainstream dialogue in, in terms of a backlash to mindfulness. It's one of the, it's one of the backlashes that seems to uh, it seems to be happening now. Um, and so that, that's been a big project is to help bring that into public awareness because, you know, it's the ethical reason. You know, one of my, one of my first teachers, Daniel Ingram is a, was a uh, ER doctor. And, you know, he described this very much in medical terms. He said, you know, if, it, if meditation, if you start taking the dose high enough, um, you're going to have these effects. Now imagine if I were, you know, uh, a surgeon and you came into um, onto my operating table and I, I made this huge incision right in the center of your chest. And then you got up and left <laughs> right there. Um, that's kind of what happened. That's what it's like when someone enters these, uh, these, these disillusionment phases of practice. 
Um, and without, and then he said, imagine that we, you know, released this medicine into the world as a, as a doctor, release this, you know, person into the world with this open incision without telling them what the side effects could be. Mm. That's the ethics of teaching mindfulness in the modern world is that, you know, that there's an issue of, uh, you know, when it's framed as a kind of panacea, uh, as this thing that's going to solve all your problems or reduce depression, anxiety, et cetera, you know, it, it, I mean, it can do those things, but it's not so reliable and consistent. And if someone really ups the dose, they're going to potentially find that their anxiety increases for a while or actually are more depressed um, because they're going through these really deep transformations in their unconsciousness. Beginning of that, you were saying you, you don't think that mindfulness in the modern world, or let's say in the West, is often being taught this way. And I certainly see mindfulness often being taught as just a way to make life easier yeah. or to eliminate stress or yes. in, in general only have immediate or fairly short-term positive effects. Um, and as you said, it can have uh, those effects, some of them for some people at some times, but that, uh, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, sounds like you're saying there there's something unethical about selling mindfulness as if that's all there is to it and not preparing people for the larger and longer-term effects, particularly if you develop a, a deeper practice over time. Yeah, which some percentage of people do, and I and I meet them because they 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 end up finding their way to you know to trainings or programs or retreats that I'm part of, and they say I got into the I say how did you get into this mess, and they say you know Headspace or Calm mm. or you know whatever it is, um, and so yeah, I, I know there's a a decent percentage of people that find the find their way into that. Yeah, and uh, I have seen some of this backlash in the last year, and of mm -hmm. course I think. Any kind of criticism that people have from their own experience or what they're seeing around them is really positive and healthy to have. But uh, are you alluding to things where people are saying, I went to a meditation course and I experienced negative emotions and therefore we should be wary of mindfulness? No, <laughs> no, it's much worse. It can be much worse than that. I mean, people, okay. people actually... Um, you know, there are, unfortunately, there's some sad stories of people who've recently committed suicide after retreats and um, who have serious mental health uh, breakdowns. Um, and that's not actually, that's not new. Um, you know, if, uh, talking to the, my teachers, the people that have been leading retreats since like the 60s and 70s, that actually happens even, w even when you have the, the container that acknowledges that it can happen and you're totally supporting people, um, it still can happen. Um, people can still kind of lose their shit a little bit and reality starts to, to kind of not, not, not appear as what we thought it was. Um, mm -hmm. That can scare people or can, it can surface deep wounds or traumas that were present and held in the body. Um, but th that we didn't know were there um, because suddenly, um, you know, it's, we're wide open and all these things can kind of rush to the surface and it can be for some people overwhelming if they're carrying a lot of pain or a lot of you know it's often it's often pain that brings people to this practice so in a way you could say you know it, it's it's even more of an issue because of what we're you know the kinds of expectations that people bring to the practice that it's going to heal them or fix them um and you know it and i think it 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 does actually provide a deep path of healing but um i'm I'm quite sure that that healing, it has to happen relationally, you know, with other people, with, um, 
you know, competent mentors and a, a network of support and that it can take years and decades um, of really engaging in the process um, and, and pulling in other resources like psychotherapeutic resources or you know, economic resources. It's not just um, that mindfulness can do all of that. Yeah, and I think for the people out there who don't know this, uh, many, if, if not all, of the major uh, meditation retreat centers, I think, one, they're all aware of this, definitely. Oh, yeah. But many, if, many, if not all of them, have medical doctors on site or relationships with them and are now familiar with using a variety of, yes. of ways of interacting with people uh, because of what you said. And, you know, I, I often wonder whether part of this, when you said it's relational, you know, if this is a, a function of the fact that mindfulness is now taught it, from teachers who don't have an ongoing relationship with yes. students. Someone might attend a, a, a silent retreat for a week yes. at a place they've never been to before with people they don't know, uh, very different than traditionally when you would be living near uh, your teacher. They'd be part of your community. You'd have ongoing interactions with them and with other people. This is a very different situation in the in the modern world. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it it's exactly what you're saying. I mean, it's not that all traditional cultures had that. Like in Tibet, people would go meet their teacher, get instructions, go into a cave for a year, and then, you know, at some point come back, right. find their teacher was dead and go find another one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for the most part, like the early contemplative communities were often monastic. Um, they often lived together, like in the Zen tradition in China and Japan, you know, people were living at monasteries together and it was it was a way of life. Um, it wasn't a lifestyle. And so, you know, that's obviously changed with modernity is, you know, people have become more individually focused and less communal. You know, we all kind of have our own separate dwellings and, you know, we really value our autonomy and our agency and we don't necessarily want to um, get entangled sometimes in some of the challenges of community uh, for very good reasons because <laughs> yes. you know, th there's all sorts of issues that come up with working with teachers especially in a kind of vertical relationship you know where there's power differentials and yet that's can be the most useful thing is to find people that one can trust both peers and you know teachers and mentors and guides to be able to move through this stuff because it's um, it's just so hard to trust our own mind sometimes when it's like we're kind of <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, lo losing touch a little bit <laughs> with our previous yes. realities. I wonder if you could talk, as, as I started out saying at the beginning of the conversation, you've been doing this for a long time. I know that that you and others at Buddhist Geeks have experimented with different ways of engaging people in meditation with each other mm -hmm. through the internet. Yes. And I wonder if you could share, you know, if I could use the words successes and failures, you know, what things have worked, what haven't and why, and what are the lessons, what, what are the lessons that you've learned and, you know, what are you doing now that maybe integrates uh, those learnings? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I'll, I'll talk about the failures first. <laughs> um, sure. As, as you said, part of the goal of Buddhist Geeks has been to try to create community online that sort of meets some of the same, those needs that we're talking about. Like, how do you have ongoing relationships with people that really can support you when shit gets hard? 
um, and, 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 and really support you when you're exploring, you know, deep territory of heart and body and mind and, um, how to do that at a distance, um, without being living in the same community physically and, um, and, and also how to work with the challenges of, um, power and, and differentials and power between teachers and students, et cetera, and the way that that can be abused and misunderstood. And um, part of the failure uh, that we've had in the, in, the, in the early part of doing this, um, my wife, Emily, and I, particularly as young teachers, you know, who are just really coming into our own as teachers and doing these experiments, is that we initially gave too much of our authority away. We distributed or decentralized the authority prematurely. Mm. and created this sort of very peer-based um, network in the Buddhist geeks community that uh, while it had some really amazing people um, and some of the stuff that came out of it was really beautiful, um, we had no way really of tracking and knowing what was going on for folks. And, you know, after the fact, after we um, pivoted away from that model, we then came to learn that there was some stuff happening that, you know, we wouldn't have been comfortable with. Um, people, you know, stepping into the vacuum of power mm -hmm. and asserting their own opinions when they may or may not have been useful. So right. that was the first mistake we made is just kind of get, kind of <laughs> sensing that we needed to do things differently, but but not doing it from a from a place where we really trusted and knew our own authority as teachers yet. Um, and then, you know, as we've as we've our current approach as teachers, um, both my wife and I, is to stand in in our seat, to stand in your seat. That's a great way to think about, it. Um, <laughs> and to and to and to trust what we do know, um, while also really aiming to um, empower others to become their own wisdom holders, and to own their own authority, and to to try to create you know new kinds of community or new ways of um, relating to each other in terms of our roles and accountabilities um, that's a little bit more distributed that's a little bit more uh, it is decentralizing um, in that in that direction because one of the problems with traditional Buddhism is the way that um, the you know the teacher or the guru becomes you know this sort of this thing that every, you know that we project all of our ideals onto, and if you're, in, if you're in that role as a teacher, and everyone's projecting their ideals onto you, you know it's terrible. Right. It's terrible because you know it's like you start, you know, I, I start to believe that I should be perfect in some way, or that I should be like not feeling angry or not, you know. It's like oh, after this many decades of practice, I'm still getting pissed when my wife, you know, leaves the, <laughs> whatever dishes out or whatever, and right. it's like, and I start to, you know. As a teacher, one can start to really um, to start acting in a way that isn't in accord with who they actually are, and they can no longer be a student themselves, and no longer be vulnerable, and no longer you know share their humanity, which is it's you know really to, is a profound teaching itself. Mm. So I'm really curious about structures and ways of practicing, and I'd say this is one of the biggest successes we've had is really focusing and emphasizing social meditation practice, you know, meditation that's done with others out loud. And I'd be happy to demonstrate it if you want to do a minute or two of social practice. Sure. I was going to ask you if you could give an example of it so people could understand 
what that means. I'd be glad to to do it with you. Yeah, it's easy, it's easiest to to demonstrate it um, instead of talking about it. So w- one of the first practices I teach people um, is a practice called social noting, and this was a practice that was developed by one of my teachers and friends, um, Kenneth Folk. And Kenneth um, took this technique from the Burmese um, tradition. It's called uh, noting meditation, typically. And it's usually done um, silently. So like in one's own mind, one would start, start to notice what their experience is and then start to note, to use a verbal label to identify what's arising moment by moment in real time. And that's, that was my first practice. I did that practice um, exclusively almost for about four years, including, you know, in four months of silent retreat. So I did a lot of it and I found it really helpful. Um, what he discovered is that if you do it out loud with another person, and he was doing this as a teacher, that it actually um, ends up becoming easier to teach the method because suddenly as the teacher, you can hear how the, the student is practicing. You can hear how they're noticing what their experience is, what kind of words they're using, where they're struggling, where they're um, not actually noticing the sensations, but just kind of making up stories about them and then saying that out loud. And then the other thing he realized in teaching it this way and going back and forth and noting out loud together is that the student could hear how he was modeling the practice, could get the benefits of the thousands and thousands of hours of practice um, and, and actually hearing how the meditation worked out loud. The third benefit, and this was, I think, unexpected, is that by making doing it out loud and doing it with other people, whether it's one person or a group of people, that suddenly attention starts to become directed toward the interpersonal aspect of experience or the ways that each other's experience impacts my experience and my experience impacts others. And that's a domain of awareness, interpersonal awareness, social awareness, that solo meditation doesn't often bring so clearly. And so people can be really awake and clear and open in their own experience and then, you know, have an interpersonal reaction and suddenly feel, you know, they lose all of it. Right. Um, and so that, that was the third thing that, that kind of he realized in, in teaching this. So, so I continue to teach this. And one of the easiest ways to do social noting is to start with a, a variation of it called there is social noting. And the, the basic instruction is just to start with the words there is and then to use a simple note or label to describe what it is that you're sensing in this moment. So it would look something like this if I were just to model it myself. There is sitting. There is breathing. There is thinking. There is relaxing. There is anticipating. There is not knowing. Okay, and then if we were to do it socially, then we would just ping pong back and forth. So I'll start. There's seeing. There is hearing. There's hearing. There is tension. There is empathy. There is seeing. There is planning. There is thinking. 
There's feeling. There is seeing. There's breathing. There is anticipating. There is anxiety. There is calmness. There is allowing. There is breathing. There is gratitude. There is seeing. Thank you. Thank you. It's interesting. I've done that before, but only in person. So it's very interesting to do it uh, online with someone who's, who I'm not physically present with. It has a different tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and usually when, when, when I lead this, these kind of exercises, it's um, online and with video. So you do get a little bit um, more dimensionality, which is nice. Well, that's great. I'm glad um, we did it um, and that people could get a taste of it, even if by not doing it themselves. Where can people participate in this or other forms of social meditation through Buddhist Geeks now? Yeah, so um, I am leading a training called Pragmatic Dharma Training, and that's um, a Buddhist Geeks project. It's at pragmaticdharma.training. Um, it's actually pretty limited, only about 50 participants, and it's, I'd say, close to full at the moment. So um, it may be that that, that that's not going to be a, a, the best avenue for a lot of people. But um, I've got other folks that are also leading trainings through Buddhist Geeks and doing social practice. So I'd say just, you know, maybe check out BuddhistGeeks.org and see, you know, see, see what's out there, see what's available. Um, my wife and I also teach retreats together, you know, doing different lengths of retreat and always welcome people that are you know, wanting to explore social practice and silent practice and the combination of those. So that's also, you know, part, part of what we do. That's great. And th- this may open up a whole other can of worms uh, that we could probably talk about for a very long time. But when you mentioned that this uh, group meditation online is limited to 50 people, yes. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what went into a decision like that? Yes. A decision to do it live rather than pre-recorded or what is ever popular now, an app. Yeah. You know, there's there's so many uh, modalities you can choose now and design online. I wonder what what went into your thinking about the particular ways in which you're doing this now online. Yeah, well, you know, so, so I'll describe the design of this training and, and then I can talk about why we, de- you know, why we design it this way. So the, the pragmatic Dharma training, it's, um, it's limited to people to 50 people because it involves a lot. So every participant I'm meeting with monthly, uh, privately, you know, for like a half an hour or every other month for an hour. And we're actually having like a private conversation about their practice. Um, that is a really powerful way to catalyze practice, you know, to, to be able to do one-on-one work with someone as I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you've had a, you know, worked with someone one-on-one before, whether it's a therapist or a meditation teacher, it's really powerful. Yes. And then the other part of the training is a weekly group meeting with a very small group of people, you know, a dozen or less folks. And in that group, which I facilitate, you know, we do social practice together. We check in about how our week has been. We open it up for discussion to just see, you know, see what people want to explore and talk about. 
And so, you know, it, there's only so much time one can do that because it's very high touch. Um, it's very relational. And the reason that it's designed that way is that I've found that those those elements of both the one-on-one relationship with teacher or mentor and having a small group of people to train with and to start to get to know and have real relationships with peers, um, that those two things seem to be really necessary to help catalyze the type of deepening that I'm interested in as a teacher and that I went through as a student. Um, and that without those things, it can be really hard to DIY it. Um, mm. And so, you know, the way I think about it is like, the, I, I want to offer trainings that are for people who are independent in their practice. They're doing their own thing, but want to do that interdependently, you know, with others. And so, you know, part of it too, for me is like, I don't, I don't tell people what they should be practicing or tell them, you know, I know all these practices, but I don't presume to know what they need all the time. Uh, Even if I give feedback and see things I think might be useful, like ultimately, you know, it's the practitioner, it's a person that's got to decide how to practice and how to get to know their own mind and to trust their own intuition and instincts. Um, So that's the reason. And, you know, for me, I see the apps and things like that. So we have an app, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I think there's usefulness in having apps because it introduces people to practice and it, um, it's a resource. It's a training resource that can be really helpful. Um, so long to me as it leads uh, or can lead, or it gives a, it gives a pathway to lead to something mm-hmm. deeper that, that can work for people. That's great. I mean, I've, I certainly know meditation teachers who uh, either only teach in person or or have been resistant to teaching online. And I can definitely understand Mm -hmm. the, the feeling of the, the, the true value of physical in person uh, social meditation and guidance and teaching Uh, at the same time. Uh, I've experienced the value of doing it online. I I, I know some people yes. who who feel like they'll do it online if it doesn't detract from uh, the 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 I don't want to just say transmission of of knowledge, but I actually want to push further and say, you know, are there any ways in which meditating online remotely uh, can't just let's say retain uh, some of the features of in-person meditation. Are there any ways in which you found it can enhance the experience or have benefits that yes. in-person doesn't? Absolutely. Have? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's sometimes the case, uh, and I've been part of many of these communities and try to, you know, trying to build these kind of communities that online communities are online um, in the Buddhist terminology, online sanghas communities of practice are affinity based. You know, people are there because there's something that they all have an affinity for that can be very specific, like pragmatic Dharma. That's like a specific Mm -hmm. way of approaching meditation and mind training and living. You know, it's, it's, it's rooted in these very specific lineages and these very specific philosophies. You know, if I were to start a pragmatic Dharma thing in my (laughs) local city, you know, it's like maybe two people would show up, right? But online, you know, a hundred people show up. And so there's something amazing about a, a group of people who have a shared affinity coming together to do something um, together. And, and, you know, I think in the past, pre-internet, that was only probably ever possible in major urban areas where there were enough people 
that you could get that kind of affinity group together in person. Um, and now it's like that, that can happen everywhere and anywhere online. And to me, that is really powerful. And it is really, um, it's, it's a special kind of community um, that is in many ways um, better for learning a better environment for learning than if one were to just get together with other people in person, but not have a shared affinity. Yeah. It's uh, for those people who are familiar with the term long tail. Yeah. You know, this is the term, right. right. Originally in marketing, I think for, you know, when it became pro when it became profitable to market super niche products, uh, books that only maybe three or 400 people would buy, which would never have made sense to sell, in Barnes and Noble when that company still existed <laughs> because the market wasn't big enough. And yeah, the positive side of that long tail is that it, it helps the people who are, let's say, uh, whose interests uh, are not as common or maybe not as mainstream to actually find each other and interact with each other in a way that, as you said, would have either been impossible or just prohibitively expensive. You know, yes. certainly pre-internet people might Travel, travel to a conference right. once a year mm -hmm. uh, with people who are like them if they were, uh, you know, had an unusual interest. But yes. what you're talking about allows people to do it regularly. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful. And, you know, it's, I, I'm glad you brought up the long tail because I was I was uh, reading recently an article that kind of pointed out that in many ways, the long tail, say, of book sales uh, or of other things has been now um completely dominated by uh, single corporations like Amazon. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that I think is maybe worth thinking about, you know, for the future of mindfulness and, and online and technology is, you know, what kinds of platforms are going to arise that could enable these affinity groups? And let's maybe be a little bit more wary of what's driving these platforms before we kind of uh, adopt them wholesale. Because, um, and this is one of my current kind of critiques of modern mindfulness, which is that there's this underlying economic operating system running underneath it that we often don't, you know, aren't critical enough of. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of digitally fueled um, capitalism uh, in our case. And, you know, I think the, the platform makers shape the experience of the users on the platform in profound ways that are often invisible. And now, you know, we're seeing that with social media and Facebook and Twitter and that the backlash of that's starting to hit us in terms of our governance. And I think the same thing is true, you know, of, of, uh, of mindfulness and meditation and Dharma practice, all these things, like we've got to really think about also the, the platforms that we're using. And, and really, you know, I think for me, like as a, as an independent teacher, um, I, I want to protect that independence so that, um, you know, the platforms I use and the way I structure these trainings are in alignment with the deeper intention and the heart behind them. And I don't see most of modern capitalism and, and most of these platforms being in alignment with, um, with what I've learned from practicing. It's very interesting. You know, you think about uh, two different models of let's call it aggregating uh, services or production. You've got a, a company that might, vertically integrate and and become huge i think that's what you're talking about like the risk of maybe mindfulness going in the amazon direction yeah i mean head, you uh, but, could say headspace is already you know moving in that direction uh, or right and you know 
I've been thinking there there are other models and sometimes, you know, they lose their original intent. But in the organic food industry or in even in coffee, you know, there are companies that Craft really beer. make an right. You know, they make an effort to grow big by becoming, let's say, a collective or an aggregator of small uh, cottage industry companies that allow the, those individual members to retain their individuality and their smallness, but get the benefit of being part of a collective. And, yes. you know, that, that, I don't know if you're thinking that's one direction that mindfulness could go into enable yeah. the Buddhist geeks and technology for mindfulness of the world to pool together, uh, to get some of the exposure and visibility, but without, you know, becoming uh, Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I think so. And I think that that's, that's, that is the direction that I, that I hope, that things move, you know, more cooperative, uh, collaborative. You know, I see, I see some promising trends in, in say like the, um, um, the cryptocurrency, uh, space. I mean, I see a lot of crazy shit there too. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but, you know, but that was a space that I got into, you know, almost from the very beginning because, because of, because of the potential of programming our own economic systems or programming our own governance systems and, and decentralizing some of the trust, um, distributing the trust through the network and programming it. That something about that, that I think could be promising, you know, uh, early on, I had this thought experiment of like, what would, a, what would Buddha coin look like? You know, what mm. would an economy <laughs> that was based on generosity and the principles of generosity, how would that be structured? What would, you know, what would the code look like? Um, you know, so so to me, yeah, those kind of open experimental models that are actually, you know, trying to break away from capitalism a little bit and offer alternatives, because that's what, you know, the history of Buddhism is a history of a, a very alternative way of looking at things. I mean, early Buddhist history, um, it, you know, I, I think it's hard to realize how profound this is now. But I mean, it was a break from the Indian caste system. It was a break from like the God determined, you know, order of society. And, um, and, and also in the early Buddhist tradition, women, women were eventually, uh, um, invited in. It was, uh, the Buddha's, according to the legend, you know, it was the Buddha's attendant, uh, Ananda who encouraged him to let women in because they had equal potential for awakening. And that's also was profound mm. in, in that culture at that time. And so, you know, I think it's something about the realization that comes from investigating the heart and opening and, um, and clearly seeing, you know, what this human life is like um, and where we suffer and where we, you know, where we hurt each other um, and, and gaining wisdom into that actually can enable one to think differently about society and how we structure things on a social and systemic level. And so I hope that, you know, deep meditators and deep practitioners, people that get into this stuff through modern means um, go deep enough to start to question how it is that we've structured our very society and start to rethink mm. and, and re redesign um, and offer alternatives to that. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it sounds like uh, the, the hope is that what Buddhist Geeks is doing will help people transform in a way that would help Buddhist Geeks and other organizations like it grow and become more sustainable at what they're doing. Yeah, and in a different way, you know, in, in a right. way that's generosity-powered. Um, as yes. opposed to, you know, um, kind of continuing to do some of the things, you know, using the tactics and strategies that, you know, just taste bad. <laughs> you know, it's just right. like at the end of the day, it's like, <laughs> okay, like I'm getting results, but damn, that doesn't feel good to like 
use <laughs> artificial scarcity to encourage someone to take an action. You know, when I said earlier that there's like not that many spaces filled, it's not because I want you to be interested in it. It's because it's actually true. Right. <laughs> and I think part of the reason it's true is because, you know, um, like we're part of what we're doing with this, this, these new trainings is we're using a transparent generosity um, economic model, which is a new thing. Um, you know, we're sort of giving people data about how much we think we need for this program to work, um, what the averages that people are actually giving and then um, what the range is. And then we're saying, hey, it's up to you. Like, it's up to you how much you want to give and what you can give, you know, given your exchange rate compared to the U.S. dollar, given your current ec economic situation, given whatever. And like, to me, I I've seen such a profound response to that model. And that's been my part of my own personal experimenting. Like, what can I do to move things in the more generosity direction? Um, and that's, I think that's part of the reason that it actually is, you know, is popular. Hmm. That's really great. I mean, I'd encourage anyone who is interested in that. I know people in all walks of life, uh, are, are, have been working on in their own ways, experimenting with these different economic models. And as much as we criticize the internet for helping mega corporations grow, it's also been a really fertile ground for all of this other kind of experimentation as well. Yeah, I think as long as we can maintain some net neutrality, um, then right. we should be able to continue experimenting, exploring. Yeah. Great. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you, Vincent. Likewise. I'm sure we could keep keep talking forever. Uh, but about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks so much for, for joining me on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Bye now. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Vincent Horn, a meditation teacher and co-founder of Buddhist Geeks. Vincent is currently running a pragmatic Dharma training program for people who want to accelerate their personal and social awakening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. And find out about our Tap Into Mindfulness course for helping you to take control of your smartphone at tapintomindfulness.com. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast when we'll welcome back author and independent filmmaker John DeGraff, this time to talk about mindfulness, environmentalism, and beauty.